We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. You think football is still fun? Uh, yes. Sir. Yes, no. No? Sir, sir uh, it was fun. Not anymore, though, is it? Is it? No, not by No, it's not fun anymore. Not even a little bit. Just look at that. He hit the fucking ball. That gets a free steak. <laughs> you having fun yet? Oh, yeah. I'm having a blast. Thanks. Good. All right, welcome back to Big Screen Sports, the sports movie podcast brought to you by Blue Wire Podcast. I am your host, Kyle Banduho. A special little midweek episode for you this week. And as always, our episodes are presented by our Big Screen Sports Patreon group, especially our producer-level patrons. That is Aaron Figueroa, Mike Schubert, Steve Rogers, Kevin Frost, Mike D., Ryan Yeager, Mike Dries, James Kowaluski, and Chris Mikoski. Big shout-out to everyone who has joined that Big Screen Sports Patreon group where they selected our most recent episode, the movie for our most recent episode, Love and Basketball. And if you want to pick an episode in November, a movie for an episode in November, you can go to patreon.com slash sports. Go check that out. Vote in the polls. Those are up now. But for today's special midweek episode, I am joined by the author of the upcoming book, Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Clayton Schroeder. Clayton, thank you so much for joining me on Big Screen Sports. Kyle, thanks for making time for me. I appreciate coming on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I've been I've been the one who's been been hard to to get this scheduled. But you, you know, sent me the info on your book. Uh, I think awesome idea. I mean, the tortured city of Atlanta is is pretty fitting. I mean, your book talks about you know the the '60s and the '70s, but I mean that is, I guess the, that theme uh, for Atlanta has been a long running thing and pretty pretty timely time, I guess, for you to be uh, on this podcast promoting this book because Atlanta is trying to not be Loserville in the next week. Absolutely, maybe this week will provide some punctuation on the book. I mean, in many ways, a story of unfulfilled dreams which i guess the braves to some extent did during their run in the 90s and the 2000s but uh, i think a lot of cities that were expansion sports towns found it a lot harder to become successful than they initially anticipated and atlanta is essentially the pioneer of that series of problems yeah as listeners of this show know i grew up watching the 91 world series vhs on on a weekly basis where my beloved minnesota twins uh took it to the braves in an incredible series so uh suck it smoltz but um what (laughs) 
what brought you to this to this project in this period in Atlanta sports? And, and for the listeners, could you kind of unpack what's going on in Atlanta during this time that that you you look in on? Yes, yeah, this book is primarily taking place in the 1960s and 1970s. Atlanta is without question the most progressive city in the South. It's a city that desegregates before the Civil Rights Act, while the rest of the South is in Jim Crow mode fighting fighting desegregation. Atlanta willfully chooses to do so. They have this bipartisan governing coalition in the city, bi- biracial governing coalition that is very focused on the business development of Atlanta. Atlanta becomes the economic center of the Southeast, in part because people from other parts of the country were not embarrassed to invest there because it wasn't like what one envisioned the Jim Crow South being like. Atlanta was quite a bit different. So Atlanta was an economically thriving town. They have a civic leadership in the 1960s that is that aspires very strongly to become what they call a major league city. So the city invests in two stadiums, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and the Omni Coliseum. And in a five-year period, they end up getting uh, four major professional sports franchises. They go from having no teams to having teams in all of the major leagues between 1966 and 1972. And they do so not by just trying to lure one team, but they have this very coordinated hype promotional machine out there trying to lure the major the major leagues to town, just like they're trying to lure a factory from another part of the country or a branch plant of a large corporation. And the the city leaders are very persuasive and they also put money behind their cause. They're willing to invest in interstate highways and infrastructure to bring people to these stadiums. They're willing to help subsidize, subsidize and finance these stadiums. So Atlanta, through a lot of self-promotion and promotional guile, is able to go from being a minor league town to a major league town very quickly as a result. And many other cities have since copied the approach Atlanta took during this time period. And we know the Atlanta area now is a really passionate fan base. They get behind their Falcons that will always, always, always betray them. You know, they, they're behind the Braves right now, though the Braves have moved to Cobb County, um, which is a, a whole nother subject. But how, mm-hmm. when all the, when these teams came to town all at once, how did the city, how did the fans rally around them did they gravitate to certain amounts because i mean this is pre the whole south gravitated but got behind the braves especially in the you know in the 90s when their games were always on everywhere but how what was the i guess the civilian reaction when each team came in they seemed to have an ever shorter honeymoon period with the local uh sports fans there's a few different problems the teams in this marketplace had First of all, when you have so many teams coming in so quickly, there's only so many people with the discretionary income to go support pro sports teams on a regular basis, and the teams are poaching one another's potential fans all the time. Secondarily, you have a huge number of transplants from other parts of the country in Atlanta, so those people may have remained fans of New York teams or Chicago teams or Boston teams or Philadelphia teams and didn't necessarily embrace the hometown teams. From the 60s onward, there was this huge phenomenon of people going to Atlanta sports games and cheering for the team from the other town as a result of it. Atlanta also very quickly became a profoundly suburban town, very spread out, very, very dispersed. The idea of somebody driving back into the city after work to come to a weeknight game seemed very unappealing. Also, if you play baseball, which is the, the sport that's playing in the summertime, you're, you know, it's. 90, 100 degrees much of the summer, sitting outside and sweating it out at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was not necessarily the most attractive thing for a lot of fans. There's there's urban suburban divides going on. There's 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 certainly racial divisions in the region, too, that I go into detail about in the book uh, as well. 
Um, there's also the issue that people who were from the area originally already had sporting passions before the big leagues got there. College football couldn't have been bigger. High school football couldn't have been bigger. Stock car racing, golf, even professional wrestling. On many of Friday nights, pro wrestling at an unair conditioned armory that was built in the very early part of the 20th century outdrew the Atlanta Hawks at the brand new Omni with Pete Maravich, the best known basketball player in the country, playing for the Hawks. So just because there were all these new teams wearing Atlanta across their chest didn't mean that the locals were going to give up their existing sports passions to focus on these new teams. So there's a lot of different moving parts for why these teams weren't as successful as city leaders anticipated they would be. So what was the the plan then to try to turn the tide? And what, I mean, now knowing what we know now, what do you think did turn the tide? Is it a, is it a winning cures all thing? Or is it you just have to wait for a second generation who grew up with these teams? I, I think it's really a question of ownership. I mean, the Braves had absentee owners. Their ownership group was largely a bunch of businessmen from Chicago, and they largely remained there. Um, the Falcons had Rankin Smith as their first owner, who was fantastic at selling insurance, but was not really a football man. Um, the Hawks and Atlanta Flames hockey team had Tom Cousins as their owner, who was primarily focused on redeveloping downtown Atlanta. The sports were kind of his secondary focus. So you didn't really have people who were experts in the business running those franchises. The short answer for what saved pro sports for Atlanta is Ted Turner. Ted Turner buys the Braves in 1976. He buys the Hawks in 1977. And for many years, he's willing to lose money on these teams because they provide programming for his TBS uh, network, which is just beginning to beam out to the rest of the country. So Turner sustains losses for many years. These teams struggle in the standings for a long time. They struggle at the box office. Eventually, once they get the right people in in place, um, they start to win. And then these teams eventually accumulate a fan base. Um, There's little stops and starts with the Braves. Obviously, in 82, they win the NL West and have the brief America's team vogue. But it's really not until the 90s that the Braves develop this, this very strong, passionate regional fan base. Yeah, I mean, the Braves on TBS in the 90s is just a matter. It's why you see so many Braves fans around now. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and obviously it was a little different. We had the Braves AAA team there as well, mm-hmm. so they, it was obviously a hotbed for Braves fans. But it's still, you know, a couple of my childhood best friends are flying into Houston to go to, you know, to go to the World Series and paying a bunch of money for that because they watched Chipper and Javi and Glavin and Maddox on TBS, you know, so um, that the the broadcasting stuff can't be overstated. So what what brought you in particular to the project what what made this i'm i'm always interested in that with you know with book projects or anything in general what um what captivated you enough to put in all the work to write this book it began when i was in graduate school i hold a phd in us history from boston college my areas of expertise are american urban history and the history of american culture and i looked for a subject that was related to those two for my dissertation And initially, my idea was to write about the history of franchise relocations and its impact on cities. My advisor very wisely suggested that I just pick one city and use it as a case case study to describe the broader phenomenon that's happening economically, politically, socially in regards to this. And Atlanta, since it was really the first city that made this very targeted effort to go from being a kind of regional center outside of the mainstream of American sports into being a major American sports town, Atlanta in many ways was was a natural choice. So that became the subject of my doctoral dissertation, which began about 10 years ago. And once I finished that, I I, um, moved towards uh, turning this into a book, which is a very different process, turning it into more of a 
more of a study. I mean, more of a story than, than an academic study. This is really the story of a city and its teams in the 60s and 70s looking through a, through a national lens. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And who are the linchpin interviews for you in this book? It's always something that interests me with books as well. Who who did you have to get? Who was this book not complete without talking to? Or who was the, you know, like your, your Rosetta Stone as far as this person, through this person's eyes, will see Atlanta? Well, one thing that was very difficult was the vast majority of people I wanted to speak with in terms of the city leaders were dead. That's usually a, a problem, yeah. Dead, dead people are hard to get a hold of. <laughs> I spoke with a guy named Sam Massel, who was incredibly helpful. He was the mayor of Atlanta from 1969 through 1973. He's a very heroic figure in the book. In many ways, Atlanta, when they when they build Atlanta Fulton County Stadium, they pay for it with property taxes. The citizens of Atlanta, whether you own a little house or a big house, you are paying for that stadium. Sam Massel was a guy who was a real estate lawyer, used his expertise to get Atlanta a much better deal on the Omni. The city helped in terms of financing it by using its stadium authority. To, to do so, but the taxpayers got a much better deal on that stadium. So he was able to, in the nuts and bolts aspects of the book, be very helpful. I talked to another number of prominent players. I talked to Tommy Nobis, who was the original Atlanta Falcon. I talked to Bill Clement, the hockey announcer, who was a member of the Flames. He was a fantastic interviewee. He gave me a lot of great insights into the, the surprising popularity of the Flames in the region during the time period. For many kind of upscale consumers in Atlanta, that was the go-to night out uh, in the wintertime in Atlanta during the 1970s. They end up leaving town as much as anything because the owner gets into trouble with his real estate empire and is looking for different sources of revenue. So he sells off his flames. He gets $20 million for them, which is more than two and a half times what he paid for them eight years earlier. So that had less to do with the popularity of the flames, who had surprising appeal in part because they were so novel uh, than it did the team's actual uh, on ice or box office success. Um, trying to think of other major interviews. Actually, a major thing was simply talking to fans from the time period. I interviewed a couple of dozen uh, people who'd been Atlanta sports fans for more than a half century to talk about their recollections and experiences. And they gave me really a sense of the, the color and texture and tone of the time period. So I guess those would be the most significant interviews I had. I did about, I think, between 40 and 50 for the book. And where can folks pre-order the book? When can they expect it? You know, get, Give the details on, on where we buy in this thing. The University of Nebraska Press, who's the nation's top sports history publisher, is publishing this book in early 2022. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes Noble, and all your other fine uh, online retailers. I'm on Twitter at Clayton Truder. I'd love to be your friend on Facebook too, and 
uh, talk talk Atlanta sports and any other uh, sports you're interested in. I also do a lot of other freelance sports writing too, so that's also another uh, venue for seeing that as well. Yeah, and those links are going to be in the show notes, so go check those out. Follow Clayton on Twitter, pre-order the book. But as as you folks know, this is a sports movie podcast. I was not going to let Clayton come on here and not give me at least his top three sports films. But before we get into that, something we were talking about pre-recording is Clayton. As folks, as you know, I love Everybody Wants Some. I sing its praises. I want it... It, it needs to be shouted from the rooftops how good a movie that is. Clayton also agrees. It's something we were talking about before we started in that movie. And so I, I kind of want to talk to you. How did you first experience the movie? Because I think the one thing about every, I mean, it was technically a bomb. It wasn't widely released, kind of very similar to Days and Confused. And I feel like we are one good, solid uh, combination of when Top Gun comes out and Glenn Powell gets more famous <laughs> and when, uh, you know, Wyatt Russell was just in that the Falcon and the Winter Soldier and stuff like that. And he's obviously Kurt Russell's son. So we've got some star power out there. And I think we're one Netflix run away from it really having the second life. Where did you first experience it? I watched it in a movie theater almost by myself. I think I'm there may so have been jealous. Two, two other people in the movie theater. I, uh, it was only being shown like the art house. The I, I was living in Boston at the time. It was like at the art house theater a couple of miles from my house. And I went there and I think there everybody there was wearing a baseball hat, if I remember correctly. That I sounds think, right. Was I, wearing? I was wearing. I think I may have been wearing a Brooklyn Dodgers hat. I forget. But uh, I'm not sure. I, I forget. I mean, no, I, no, I was wearing. I was wearing my 1983 Fresno State NIT championship hat. That's what. I was oh, that's wearing. fire. So that's fire. Yeah. Found it at a Goodwill a couple a uh, few years back. Um, that's a must buy. It uh, oh I, I I went back and saw it three days later after I saw it the first time and I think there were three guys there that time uh, as well. I mean uh, Richard Linkletter I love his love his movies. Um, I mean Slacker when that came out I was I don't know I was like eleven or something when that came out. I think I saw it when I was like thirteen and then I that's what that's what college is like. That's the people in that movie. And I think I, I probably watched it like five times in a week once I uh, uh, a friend of mine had the VHS tape for it. So I've been a huge fan of his ever since then. I love his dialogue in particular. And I think like we were talking about before the podcast, these sound like ballplayers talking. These guys, they sound like actual human beings, which is very rare in a film. And uh, I think it really gives you a great sense of a time and place. And they're just fun to hang around with those guys. They feel like your friends after a while. Yeah, it's like going to going to spend the weekend with your buddies. And I mean, I, I've shouted this from the rooftops, but it's it's such the baseball feel is, is so evident throughout the movie. It shapes everything about it. It's for me like it's it's easily a top five baseball movie. It might be a top three college movie in terms of really feeling like college, like college mm-hmm. experience, because like you think about when you think about top college, like you think about Animal House. Well, no one's college experience was really like Animal House. Yeah, nobody's anyway. 35 years old in college either. Like, I feel exactly. like John Belushi is pushing middle age in that movie. Exactly. I mean, Bruce McGill is D-Day. I yeah. think Bruce McGill was born 40. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a flawless, flawless movie. But um, getting into your top three sports movies, I had you. That's that's a challenge picking top three we've had a lot of sports movies i think this this podcast itself has had over 150 episodes mostly covering sports movies so what what is uh what is number three for you well when we initially discussed this i thought you wanted me to do the top three underdog sports movies and these would yeah, all be actually my top yeah 10, under so yes. yeah let's go let's go underdog sports movies that's right okay my number three film i sort of have a tie because i think they're basically the same movie Bad News Bears and Major League, which I love. I love both of those tremendously. I think in some ways they seem like these anti-hero films when you first look at them, kind of transgressive in some respects. But I think in many ways they are traditional, oh, get this group of plucky underdogs together and they'll 
they'll defeat the system kind of thing. I mean, Bad News Bears, I love in particular. The 1970s are my favorite era of cinema. It seems like the old taboos of the previous Hollywood were starting to fall apart and the new ones of the kind of human resource era of Hollywood have kind of had not really been put in place yet. So you had these characters who sounded like actual people talking, very flawed people, uh, certainly. I mean, you look, you know, you know, Tanner is, you know, like like a nine-year-old Archie Bunker or whatever. I mean, Buttermaker um, is Butter- highly flawed. Absolutely. I mean, everybody is, is, is problematic in all kinds of, you know, ways in that film. They're all interesting characters. They're all agents in their own right. Um, I've always particularly loved the scene where where Tanner and Lupus are sitting there having hot dogs and the kids from the Yankees come and they kind of pick on Lupus and Tanner fights the two guys knowing he's going to lose. But his defiance of, of them, it just I, there's something I think so charming about that. And he, and he and Lupus aren't good friends, but they're teammates. So they have this bond. So he's willing to fight for this guy, even though he knows he's going to end up in the trash can getting his ass kicked. There's a I think I think um, there's many human characteristics that are very valued. I think sometimes intelligence gets a little overvalued. I think having heart, having a sense of basic decency. Um, Tanner may not have had that in other respects, but certainly in regards to his teammate, he had this kind of very instinctive loyalty that I find a very admirable human trait. When I think about uh, the people who, as a child, molded me to being someone who was deeply interested in trying cigarettes when I got into college, it's like 1A is is Danny Zuko from Greece, and 1B is Kelly Leak from The Bad News Bears, who's just a very cool smoker. Absolutely. I mean, just an all-around badass in general. With no, you know, it's not like Kevin Bacon and Footloose where he's got these like redeeming side qualities. He's just like a wrestling heel all the way through. There's nothing really positive about him as a character. That's what makes him such a such a great uh, movie bad guy. I mean, I guess heel in, in the wrestling sense. Yeah. And I mean, in Major League is just I mean, that's a it's a top three baseball movie for me per my recent recent list on the rankings podcast. Um just such a, and it's funny, you know, I just, I just recapped Ted Lasso for the last couple of months in this, in, uh, on this show and the plot of Ted Lasso, at least the broad plot of Ted Lasso is very similar to, to major league that plot it brings in, but it catches a lot of actors at great times. It's still very funny. The baseball looks good. Just solid, solid, solid stuff. The managers, everything the manager says is gold. I actually think the funniest thing about the, the major league series is actually in the second film, which itself is not that great but when he is in the hospital and he's watching the british kind of masterpiece theater show and just living and dying by what's happening with that 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 just kills me i could just any night turn that on youtube and watch that yeah it's it's something like i live for this shit or whatever whatever he says it's just (laughs) just going crazy so good so what is uh what is number two underdog story for you number two would be hoosiers which speak which a movie i referenced earlier it's sort of basketball footloose i think that if you look at Norman Dale's, the Norman Dale character and the Ren, Ren whatever, what is his name? And uh, what is his name in Footloose? Like Ren McAfee or something, I forget. Um, Kevin Bacon's character in Footloose. They're both these outsiders who come to small town Indiana and they show them something new and they, they, they teach these people about something new about the world through their through the power of their personal charisma and uh, experience. Um, with Kevin Bacon, he teaches them about rock and roll, and they have the senior prom, and he like brings the uh, the small town Indiana into the 20th century. With Norman Dale, he brings, I guess, he brings uh, an old school basketball toughness. But what is most important that he brings is the zone defense. This is I've always been a man to man town. You know, you've only got seven guys. You really have to you really have to play zone. You're not going to have five dominant defenders, I don't think. And by doing that, 
he uh, he's got the one great score with Jimmy Chitwood, and he's able to take to kind of milk the zone defense. Which one thing I, I, I my second project is a basketball project, and I've talked to a lot of older basketball guys. They all viewed the zone defense as being um, like unmanly, basically. That that's that's not real basketball is the way they all talked about it. So, and these are guys who were born in the fifties, let alone guys who were playing basketball in the fifties. I mean, I can't imagine what they thought about it. Um, and he's willing to bring this 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 bizarre kind of untoward defense to town. And this is the mat. This is sort of zone defenses to nineteen fifty two Indiana. I guess what rock and roll was to nineteen eighty four Indiana and Footloose. So I've always loved Hoosiers as a period piece, and also just this introduction of a character into a into a town, and he kind of teaches the people something new about themselves. Yeah, it's got a great score, great big chill moment. I mean, the biggest knock on Hoosiers is Gene Hackman and Barbara Hershey couldn't have any less sexual chemistry than they do in that movie. I don't know. Kevin Bacon and Laurie, uh, Laurie Spinner there don't have a ton either. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, they're two peas in a pod, Footloose and Hoosiers. Uh, hit me with your number one underdog story. The first half of Rocky Three. Interesting. Rocky's obviously a great underdog story, but you look at Rocky Three. You see this basically music video at the beginning of this. I think this movie comes out in 1982. This is just the dawn of music videos. And they figure we're going to make the beginning of this movie one of those. And it tells a great story. You see Rocky be going from being this underdog who wins the title against Apollo Creed to being almost like Rocky Incorporated. He's on the Muppet Show. He's on the cover of GQ. He's fighting all these bums and just defending his title time after time. He's, he's become the family man. He's got this very nice, rich life all of the urban grit that made him a champion. He's living in Kensington in Philadelphia, which if you've ever been there, it's a pretty rough place. I mean, that's where he's depicted as living in the film. Um, he's lost all of that by the beginning of Rocky three. And he's as, as uh, Mickey says to him, you got civilized. That's why you're not a great fighter anymore. Who is he fighting? He is fighting this lone wolf in clubber Lang. Who's off by himself training in what looks like a dungeon running through the streets of the South side of Chicago he still has this urban grit, the grit that was in Philadelphia. It was also there in Chicago. Clubber Lang has this. He's ready to challenge for the title. The ultimate badass move in movie history, go to Rocky's statue dedication, dressed like a cowboy, basically. Go there, you know, talk, you know, just be there criticizing, you know, talking trash to, to Rocky, talking to his wife, uh, saying your old man has lost his heart. The whole town is there ready to honor Rocky Balboa and Clubber Lang is there by himself. Then he ends up getting the title fight because Rocky, you know, doesn't want to give up on it. Mickey knows what's coming. Mickey sees that this is a guy with the heart that Rocky used to have. Then they go get ready for the fight. They have the tussle at the beginning of the fight. He kills Mickey. So Rick, so Rocky loses his grounding through that. And Clubber Lang goes and knocks him out in the second round. Clubber Lang all by himself wins the heavyweight title against Rocky Incorporated. And if you think about it, the kind of fighter, the way Clubber Lang fights, he's kind of a short squat fighter, all these hooks he's throwing. He fights exactly like Philadelphia's actual heavyweight champion, Joe Frazier. So you have Joe Frazier going out there and beating this pretend Philadelphia champion, Sylvester Stallone, for the title. Also, I think the way Clubber Lang presented himself, Mike Tyson, I think, emulated it very much. It's very sparse look to him. He's wearing these black black ring shoes he's wearing these these dark trunks he's got a towel over his head tyson just went out there like a lone wolf in the same way just a few years later in the second half of the movie how does rocky defeat him he goes back to his roots he's got apollo to show him the way he goes back to a gritty inner city training regimen people always focus on this like 
running on the beach and splashing music video or whatever. That is that's the re- meme, yes. That is not, I mean, much of that is going, go, he's going to the South Central Los Angeles, training with Apollo, learning what, it, again, what it means to be hungry, to be a champion. He develops the eye of the tiger that way. He's got to go back into the belly of the beast to fight uh, Clubber Lang and take the title back from him, which is all well and good. But he's got a heavyweight champion training him. His previous trainer, trainer Mickey, was obviously a great trainer. We never really get to know. I mean, uh, Clubber Lang has a cornerman who's like, you know, like, stay out of there. You know, he's not a lot of help. Clubber Lang is also the greatest villain in the history of that series. People all be like, "Oh, Drago, Drago." I would, Drago. Ag- I would agree with the the Clubber Lang. Clubber Lang is much, much more intimidating. Drago is a robot. Drago, Drago has I can't think of what the comrade Big Mouth, whatever his name is, telling him what to do. He's got his wife there, like you know, telling him about how to be a champion. Uh, without them, he is nothing. He's he's obviously a big, strong, muscular guy. Clubber Lang is a killer. He's a better trash ta- trash talker. The fact that he kills Mickey, I think, is one of the most underrated parts of his character. What well, it's a what great... Mickey talks about is that he's hungry. He the whole thing about he's hungry. He used to have that look. That whole thing. You don't feel that no one actually no one Rocky faces has that same hunger besides Clubber Lang. Apollo Creed is not is not hungry. And then this fight in the second movie is more just like money maker to also defend his honor and be like, I got to put this guy down out of you know embarrassment. Drago is just a machine. He's being told you need to be Rocky. He's not hungry. Clubber Lang would eat Rocky's throat if he had the chance. Absolutely. Yeah. He's I think to me, it's actually my favorite of the Rocky movies. And I mean, I love Rocky. I think Rocky two is a little underrated actually. Um, I think people just view it as kind of a silly follow-up. The opening scene with the ambulances and they go to the hospital and like the, the interaction between the two of them, I think is fantastic. Seeing the fighter who really, the money doesn't last very long, I think is a very realistic depiction of what it's like to be an athlete who gets the one big paycheck and then the hunger coming from it. But there's just something about drug. I mean, not, what am I saying? There's something about Clubber Lang that's just such, he's, he's such a unique agent in these films. And I, I think he's, his story all by himself, pulling himself up and becoming the champion against all odds with people genuinely trying to not let him get a title shot is a remarkable thing. Keep in mind, Rocky is there because he won a lottery ticket, basically. Oh, this guy'd be an interesting matchup. Why not? He didn't do anything to earn a title shot. Clubber Lang earned every single thing that he had. That is that is a very, very interesting take. I, I'm glad you brought that to the show. It's a, I think it's a good point to end it on. Clayton, tell the folks again about your book, where they can get it, when they can get it. My book is called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. It comes out in early 2022 at the University of Nebraska Press. It's available for pre-order on Amazon.com, on Barnes & Noble, and all your other fine online book retailers. Uh, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter, at Clayton Truder, and I'd love to be your friend on Facebook, too. All those links are going to be in the show notes. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode of Big Screen Sports, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast rate and leave a review join in next week on monday me and alex mcdaniel doing our ted lasso season two recap uh, best moments taking questions from the patreon group a lot of good stuff there if you're a baseball fan go check out my interview series from phenom to the farm that is presented to you by baseball america comes at you every other tuesday great episode coming next tuesday tune in for that one and we'll catch you on monday thanks for listening Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. 
That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.